Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast that tries to do something different. A discussion between Jim Power and Chris Johns about the issues of the day, political developments, economics, finance, and anything else that takes our interest. How are we different? We hope our discussions speak for themselves. You are most welcome to our podcast. Hi, Jim. Hi, everyone. All most welcome. Uh, this is an interesting podcast because we've changed the agenda uh, just before we started, because so much has happened today. What we were going to do, and hopefully we'll still find time, is actually do something we haven't done before, which is have a look at the behavior of financial markets and economies, the news flow, the data that's been out in the first quarter. We've just ended the quarter, so it's it's timely, um, at least. Uh, and, also, and use that background, uh, that data from Q1, to have a look forward. So we'll probably mention that towards the end. But Jim and I, we found ourselves talking about uh, events of the day, as, as we often do. That's why we started this podcast, actually. We just thought we'd record our conversations, which uh, we typically have. Um, few things have happened today. The Exchequer returns are out. The IMF has produced a bang-up-to-date series of new forecasts, the changes to which make fascinating reading. Um, and we may find time for that in our economic discussion. But the thing that grabbed both of our attention was um, uh, Colm Henry, uh, an HSC medic uh, appearance on RTE today, talking about the data that's emerged on whether or not you catch COVID indoors versus outdoors. And his his remarks attracted an awful lot of attention, not just ours. Um, there's been quite a bit of Twitter commentary this afternoon. Um, I put my hand up, full disclosure, I've joined in because I did find some of his remarks uh, interesting, to say the least. But uh, Jim, why don't you start by giving 
us your reaction to what you heard, perhaps summarising what you heard as well. Well, I guess last night I was filled with hope and optimism when I saw the data published by the Health Protection Surveillance Centre, who basically said that 0.1% of COVID cases can be attributed to outdoor activities. And uh, you certainly have been saying that since last March, um, 12 months at this stage, because, you know, all of the scientific and medical evidence from around the world was suggesting that it's very difficult to pick it up out of doors um, and indoors, obviously, is where the risks lie. And if you're in an enclosed space where you're shouting at somebody or very close to somebody, you know, the risk increases significantly. So I, I felt um, that that should and most likely would lead to some rollback from NEFET in terms of the uh, restrictions that are in place, particularly the restrictions on outdoor activity. Um, alas, I was naive and foolish because when I heard the chief clinical officer with the HSE, Colm Henry, on radio today suggesting that the outdoor COVID um, figures only relate to recorded outbreaks and that they don't give an accurate picture. Uh, I was astounded and I've I've read and reread what he said and listened a couple of more times to what he said. Um, and I'm utterly confused because, um, you know, the recorded data is the recorded data. Um, and if it is suggesting, as the Health Protection Surveillance Centre is saying, that just 0.1% of cases can be attributed to outdoor activities, I mean, surely that is the fact of the matter. Um, but I, I guess it wouldn't be the first time I've been sort of astounded by the reaction of NEFET to these sorts of data because, you know, ba basically they would argue that the data, the recorded data is good when it suits their agenda and when it doesn't suit their particular agenda, um, it is flawed. So I am frustrated, confused and I, I would say that in a in a pantheon of many lows, I think today for me is a new low in terms of this whole public discourse around COVID. So the question naturally arises for me, um, and I'd be interested in your views, Jim, as to why they are doing this. Um, because, you know, this is a, a, a bunch of scientists, all very, very clever men and women, uh, charged with delivering a better health outcome for the country and why they are spinning in, in the way that they seem to, because this isn't the first time it's happened. And so, so the question naturally arises, why, why are they doing what they're doing? And I'll tell you what I think first, and, 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 and you tell me whether you think this sounds plausible. First of all, we obviously don't know what agenda they've got, what, what, what's going on behind closed doors. And um, they're not the only group of scientists to have recommended blanket restrictions similar for indoors and outdoors in, in the teeth of this scientific evidence, which, as you say, has been around since the start of this pandemic. I wrote about it a year ago. You say that you've gotten bored with me writing about it. Um, you're not the only one. And the evidence was there. Um, produced by the scientists that it's not risk-free being outdoors, but it's very, very low risk, particularly if you take a few basic precautions. So why hasn't Ireland, UK and other countries taken heed of this evidence and nuanced the public messaging? Well, I think it is about public health messaging. 
And I think it's about scientists in particular, um, not so much politicians, although they are ultimately responsible. I think the scientists basically don't trust us. That's my guess. It's only a guess. And what they said right from the get-go, as I say, this is not just Irish scientists, it's happened in Britain as well and elsewhere. What they've said is, look, we know that people get this indoors and they don't really get it very much when they're outside, particularly, as I say, when you do a little bit of social distancing and take care. But what we don't really believe is that people are capable of absorbing this message should we give it to them and wouldn't behave properly. We don't trust the public to be able to take this slightly nuanced message on board. So what we'll do is we'll put a blanket restriction on it both outdoors and indoors and pretend and not tell people that uh, the risks are very, very different. And, and that's what they've done. That's the only explanation that I've got is that we weren't trusted with the truth um, because we weren't trusted to behave ourselves. And all along, I've said that the right messaging would have been, listen, play your field sports, play your golf, play your tennis, go for your walks in the hills, socially distance. If you've got to travel, travel by bike or walk would be the preference. If you've got to go in a car, open the windows and wear masks if you've got somebody in the car with you. And if you've got to go by public transport, wear a mask. All of these things could have been advised and people, I think, would have, would have understood the message that had been delivered. And when you're out in the hills or on the courts or on the golf course or in the fields, playing your sports, doing your thing, keep socially distanced. Don't use any changing rooms. Um, we're going to try and mandate that they're locked. Just don't go inside. Going inside is where all of the trouble lurks. If you go into a poorly ventilated space with somebody that's got COVID, the chances are you're going to get it. That should have been hammered home. That should have been the public health messaging since day one. And I would argue, I can't prove this, obviously, that if that message had been hammered home in the way that we've hammered home drink driving, seat belts, and other mandated public health messages, we would have had probably a better outcome when it comes to health. And I just think that they, we weren't trusted, that, that, that they said they would, the public won't behave themselves, so we're just going to forbid everything, both indoors and outdoors. That's the only explanation I got. Now, the reason why you get these contortions um, in the media when they're presented with the evidence, as you've just outlined, Jim, is that they've got nowhere to hide anymore. So they produce these strange contortions of language. Today, we were basically told, yes, outdoors isn't a problem. But it's basically the same as indoors, because if you're outdoors, you're inevitably going to end up indoors. So therefore, it's all the same. It was Orwellian, to use a, an overused term in its use of language. But that's all I got. That's all I got, Jim. Have you got, do, do you find any of that plausible or do you have a different take on it? Uh, yeah, I, I do find it plausible in the absence of any, um, <laughs> any better explanation. And um, the, the the blanket restrictions that are in place are having an absolutely enormous impact on the health of the nation, the mental health particularly, um, on business, on the economy, on the livelihoods of people. And um, if if you accept that nothing is zero risk, um, it would appear that Neffet has a view that they're going to keep everything lockdown for as long as possible until risk disappears well the fact is the risk is never going to disappear because you know covid in one form or another is going to be with us 
um, for the foreseeable future. So the risks ain't going to go away. So I think on a cost-benefit analysis perspective, it is now time to really risk assess different activities. Take on board that official data that was published last night. And the data didn't come from people like you or me. It came from official sources that can be trusted. Okay. Um, so it's now time that we adopted a risk-based approach to this, open up those activities which are deemed very low risk, give the sort of health messaging that you're um, out- suggesting and outlining there, um, and let's proceed and try and undo some of the damage, the social, the economic, the mental damage that has been done to people and the economy and get on with it. But I fear that, as I say, Neffet's view is keep everything locked down and restricted as far as possible until risks disappear. And that ain't going to happen. What I think you're suggesting there is that Neffet um, and other scientific advisory bodies around the world adapt and respond to the data. One of the things that struck me about the Irish response and, and, and other responses is the way in which it's been very blunt and very unchanging. Um, and there's been no adaptation. There's been no learning. There's been no response to, to emerging data, which, which is a puzzle. And again, the only explanation I've got is that we're, we're not being trusted with the truth, which, which is problematic, I think. The, um, the, the interesting thing for me is that there is a, a wonderful example, counterexample to adaptation out there um, that is really quite striking. And I think this is a, a natural segue into um, something else to talk about other than COVID, which is uh, the, the IMF today have produced their um, economic forecasts and analysis of where we are, we are at the moment. And um, they don't put it in these terms, but one of the things that I've been thinking about for some time now is the way in which economies, unlike some scientists, have adapted to COVID. Uh, the numbers are extraordinary. If you'd said to either of us that we'd, we'd still be in full lockdowns around the world, great give or take, um, a year into this, we would, be produce, would have produced this time last year, along with most orthodox economists, quite catastrophic forecasts for 2021 and next year. And if we run through um, uh, what the IMF, for example, are saying for this year, the numbers are nothing short of extraordinary. For the world economy as a whole, last year it shrank by 3.3%. Now, anything other than anything under plus two percent for the world economy is generally described as the world economy being in recession. So we we were in excess of five percentage points under that for last year. That was massive. It would have been orders of magnitude in excess of that if we hadn't had all the pandemic support that government did. But look at these numbers for this year and next, Jim. Six percent for real world output growth, GDP growth this year, and about four and a half percent next year. That's all revised up since their projections only in January and big project and big revisions up since last since last October when they first which was the last time they did a major forecast round. A lot of the forecast revisions are coming in what I've called the vaccinator economies, particularly the US, but also the UK, Europe, not so much, as we know. Um, what, What do you think of these forecasts, Jim? Uh, they are quite extraordinary when you see global growth forecasts at 6% this year. Um, that would be the largest growth rate recorded since the IMF started compiling these data. Um, they have more than four decades of data collected. So uh, that's quite an extraordinary result. And you look at 
the United States delivering growth of 6.4%, the euro area, 4.4% um, growth. And you go on and on the, the, the upward revision. And this, I think, is the second time in three months the IMF has upgraded its forecast for 2021 and indeed for 2022. And as you said, it's extraordinary that this is happening in an environment where we're still subject to varying degrees of lockdown around the world. I think there is an incredible level of confidence out there um, that the policies that have been put in place by governments and central banks, that the pent up demand in the system and that the belief that the vaccinators, as you call them, you know, will emerge from lockdown um, rather quickly, that it's, it's, it's all just really, really positive for growth. Yeah, and the revision to the United States GDP forecast for this year by the IMF is a whopping 1.3% compared to what they were saying only in January. Um, and compared to what they were saying last October, it's fully 3.3 percentage points higher. Now, these are numbers which may or may not mean much to, to people listening in. But trust me, from an e economic forecasting perspective, they're massive. They're unusual to the point of being unique. I've not seen revisions like, like this um, over such a short period of time. I, I don't recall in my career. Now, an awful lot of that's got to do with um, Joe Biden's stimulus. It's got a lot to do with the pandemic supports that are being offered generally. Um, they, they are adding to this. But it does speak to that point that I began this little section with, which is the adaptability of firms and businesses outside the most directly affected sectors of hospitality and tourism. Of course, we must never and we won't forget those. But outside of those sectors, there's an awful lot going on. And the US economy is now, over the next couple of years, forecast to be actually bigger than it would otherwise have been without the pandemic, if you see what I mean. That economic scarring, which we we hear an awful lot about from our own politicians, from European politicians in the UK, the Chancellor of the Exchequer talks about the UK economy being more or less permanently smaller as a result of COVID. That's what scarring means. It just ain't there for the US. The US is not permanently smaller. It's actually thanks to the stimulus, going to be bigger than it would otherwise have been. Yeah, um, and of course, the other issue that comes out of the IMF forecasts as well, and something we have discussed a lot over the last three or four weeks, um, is the diverging gap between uh, the European Union and the United States. Uh, because, you know, despite the fact that the euro area is forecast to grow by 4.4% this year, um, the slowdown in the euro area was much more significant than in the United States last year. So last year, the eurozone lost and the European Union lost ground against the United States. And in the projected recovery over the next couple of years, further ground is going to be lost. So unless there is a dramatic change in the policy environment in Europe, you are going to see a further divergence between the states and Europe. And I, I think that's really significant. And I think another point that's very significant is um, you mentioned, um, you know, if you work in those sectors that have been subject to restrictions to varying degrees around the place, you know, those sectors will certainly not enjoy to any great extent the fruits of the growth for the foreseeable future. And I think another important message from the IMF today was that, um, the the vaccinator economies, as you call them, they're the ones that are going to do best. 
But then there are a whole load of other economies that are really, really going to lag um, the global economic recovery. And there's a, a pretty stark statistic saying that um, 95 million people are estimated to have fallen into extreme poverty in 2020. So I think COVID-19, while there won't be scarring effects in the United States, um, I think at a global level, there will be significant scarring effects. The global inequality between countries will widen further and within economies um, inequality will also widen further. So there's big policy challenges here. Um, and I think there's going to be a lot of pressure on policymakers and particularly on politicians, political leaders over the next couple of years to try and manage this growth recovery to make sure that those inequalities are addressed in a meaningful way. Uh, but let's face it, if this time last year we we knew what was likely to unfold over the next 12 or 18 months, um, these sorts of growth prognostications would really have blown us out of the water at that stage. We just wouldn't have believed it. So it's it's quite an extraordinary story to tell. Um, and, and we will be looking back, I think, um, with the benefit of hindsight and marveling at the sorts of upward revisions we've seen to growth in such a short space of time. So, there's a lot of good news there, but I think it's important to recognize there are also a lot of warning signals and things we need to watch out for. Yeah, and of course, we're talking about these revisions being published today. Um, a, a bit an important part of the world's financial architecture has, in a way, seen all of this coming. And I promised at, at the start of this uh, podcast that we'd quickly review what markets have been doing as well as economies. And the, the world's stock market and its bond markets have seen this coming um, because the world equity market in the first quarter of this year, after a very, very strong second half of last year, the world stock market measured in euros was up about four and a half percent, which in three months is enormous. Um, and an awful lot of that, of course, did come from the United States. Uh, lots, of, we, lots of things happened in the first quarter that did surprise people. Um, that was a surprise in the sense that people thought that the stock markets would take a pause for breath given the very strong second half of last year that they had. But there were a couple of things that were tipped by investment professionals, forecasters, to continue doing well this year. And the two that come to my mind are emerging markets um, that they were tipped by everybody to, to power ahead in the way that they had done last year. But they've been held back and they've been held back by U.S. bond yields going up. And the reason why U.S. bond yields are going up is because of those U.S. growth numbers that we're seeing, that we've talked about and that we're actually seeing. We had some economic data out of the U.S. yesterday, some survey data. At least one of those surveys, a bit like the IMF forecast, had never been stronger in its own history. It was quite, quite extraordinary in terms of this forward looking stuff. Um, the other thing that uh, was almost monolithic in terms of consensus forecasts at the beginning of the year is that the dollar was going to go down. You might recall all strategists were saying the dollar was going to fall. In fact, it's gone up. Um, another currency surprise has been sterling strength. Um, sterling, again, is a story of a vaccinator economy. So the dollar emerging markets have been surprising. Um, the bond yields have gone up because of those inflation worries, on the back of the US economy doing so well, people think that there may be a bit of inflation in our future. And that's the other big debate. 
the, the macroeconomic debates focused on these gaps that you've mentioned and the inflation that could come out of the United States in particular, but indeed pretty much anywhere. The puzzle for the people who are forecasting inflation is not so much the behavior of bond yields because they've responded properly. It's the behavior of gold, the traditional inflation hedge, which was at an all time, which, which, which was from its high of last summer has just fallen. Um, but of course, people now say that Bitcoin is the new gold. And that's the thing that's the inflation, everybody's fa favorite inflation hedge. We've talked about Bitcoin before. I won't bore you with any more discussion of that. Um, we we're not, we're not going to have an all lot of time for it to, today, Jim. But one of the things that I did want to ask you about was house prices, because in, in this review of asset markets during the first quarter, talking about the ones that have done well, mostly done well, the ones that haven't, housing, of course, globally is, is on a tear, um, particularly in countries, um, again, the vaccinator economies, but not just them. Um, American house prices are doing very well. U UK house prices have confounded all forecasts. What's going on in Ireland? Okay, um, I think before I answer that question, Chris, it's um, kind of important to put in context um, what you've described there in terms of global equity markets. Um, we're a few days into the second quarter, but year to date, since the 1st of January, the S&P is up by 8.7%. The NASDAQ which had suffered because the fangs had done poorly for, for a, a period of time in the first quarter. The NASDAQ is up by 5.9%. You might, you, might, you might tell our sorry for interrupting you, Jim, you might tell our listeners what, what fang means. Uh, Facebook, Amazon, Google, those, those stocks, the, the, the sort of the... The tech stocks. The, the elite of the tech stocks, they're the so-called fangs. Um, and very heavy preponderance in the Nasdaq, as I say, up by 5.9%. The UK market up by 5.7%. Germany is up by 11 And the Irish market up by 10.6%. So that's an incredible story. And it's it's a story that is being driven by, um, amongst other things, positive economic growth prognostications. Uh, basically, the markets have been sort of preempting um, and have been following to a certain extent the upward revisions to growth we're getting today, for example, from the International Monetary Fund. So all of that stuff is feeding in. And in terms of the housing market, um, it, it is quite extraordinary, actually, what has happened in the last 12 months, because I remember around this time last year um, being asked about uh, what the Irish housing market was likely to do um, during COVID-19 and as a result of COVID-19. And of course, that was an impossible question to answer. It was a stupid question to answer because we had no idea how COVID was going to evolve. And my typical answer would be that epidemiology rather than economic fundamentals will drive this stuff over the next for, for the foreseeable future. And we had no idea what the foreseeable future was going to consist of, how long it would last. But I suppose my instinct would have been that um, with large swathes of the Irish economy shut down, uh, that the Irish housing market looked very, very vulnerable. Um, and indeed, from March out to about June, July, you know, we did see um, a modest decrease in house prices. Um, you know, you know you're, you're, you're talking about roughly 2 to 3% decline over a three or four month period. But that was in a market where very few transactions were actually taking place because there was very little happening 
because of the very restrictive lockdown that was in place. But then, um, whether you're looking at the national market, the Dublin market, or outside of Dublin, from sort of June, July onwards, we started to see, um, I, w- I wouldn't describe it as a very strong recovery, but a-, a recovery. So, for example, at a national level, between March 2020 and January 2021, national prices have increased by 2.7%. Dublin prices up by 0.9 because that did suffer um, a sharper fall at the beginning of the crisis because the Dublin market was the one that was deemed to be hottest and looked a little bit vulnerable. But outside of Dublin, prices have increased by 4.3% between March 20 and January 2021. So incredibly strong performance given the economic background that was occurring. I think there are a number of factors driving it. One is that, and this is something we have spoken about a lot since we began this podcast series, and that is the dual nature of the Irish economy. Um, If you work in foreign direct investment, the multinational sector, if you work in professional services, financial services, the public sector, the last 12 months financially has been good to you. You know, wages have continued to grow. Um, economic activity in those sectors has been strong. Um, and there's been very little uncertainty about future employment prospects. Whereas if you work in hospitality, the airline industry, um, anything to do with tourism and personal services and so on, um, it's been a dreadful environment. But a lot of the house buying Um, we're seeing is coming out of those sectors that are doing well. And in fact, affordability has improved in the sense that people have accumulated a lot of savings, as we know, you know, 15 billion over the last 13 months or so. So there's a lot of money in the system. Um, And for those people in the housing market, there's something to go for at the moment. And I think another point, of course, is that coming into pre-COVID, beginning of 2020, one of the problems, the fundamental problems in the Irish housing market was the demand supply imbalance. And in fact, that has been exacerbated by COVID-19 because uh, the outdoor activities of building houses has been effectively shut down to varying degrees for the last 12 months. So housing supply has suffered. Um, Amazingly, the construction sector managed to deliver about 20,600 houses last year. The ESRI is forecasting about 16,000 this year uh, because of the restrictions that are ongoing at the minute. So we should be building roughly 35,000 houses per annum for a five-year period to bring equilibrium to the market. That's not happening. So if you combine all of those factors, you know, earnings are growing, savings are growing, housing supply is still restricted and 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 of course uh, there's also not an awful lot of transactions happening transactions are well down on where they would have been in 2019 so what i'm certainly seeing anecdotally is that houses that are going on the market are being snapped up pretty quickly at the minute so uh, you you could say that it's the fundamentals of demand and supply um, are just driving it at the minute yeah, housing attracts an awful lot of attention for obvious reasons, given the extent to which we're all invested in it. Um, one of the reasons why we talked about equity markets and bond markets is for all of us, although it's probably less visible via our pension funds and insurance policies and other forms of savings, even our state pensions are ultimately affected by 
these sorts of things, not least bond yields, which is why all of these things are important. Um, one of the most interesting pieces of economic research that I've seen in recent years about housing uh, was produced by the Bank of England last year. And it talked about demand, it talked about supply and building regulations and planning and all, this, all of the factors that we go on and on about when we all give our opinions about where we think house prices are going. But the conclusions of this research were startling. They were saying that the things that everybody go on about, supply, for example, is something that's, that I know is a very live thing in Ireland. Um, they, they matter a bit in the short term, but, but at the end of the day, there's one thing and one thing only that seems to determine house prices, and that's the level of bond yields. Yeah. Now, I've gone on about bond yields on this podcast in various ways, I've done it today, and I will no doubt do it again, because, because they determine bond yields determine everything in financial markets in the long run. In the short term, we can get anything going on, but bond yields are the most important thing. Um, poorly understood, very rarely reported on in the, in, the, in the popular media, but you're going to find us talking about them. And for as long as these bond yields stay low, Jim, I'm, I'd be I'd be bet my 50 cents with you that house prices are either going to continue to go up or at worst will stay at around these current high levels. No matter how many houses we build, actually, we can't build enough houses to make a serious difference to house prices, certainly in the short term. Um, so what's happening to bond yields in the United States in particular, but therefore what's happening to our own bond yields is critically important, not just in their own right, but how they affect all these other things that we're invested in. Housing equities are all affected by these bond yields. The US bond market just had its worst quarter, going back to that quarterly review I, I was going on about earlier on, its, its worst quarter since the early 1980s. Um, uh, the UK's bond market was even worse. Um, bond yields are still very low, but they're, they're edging up. And if they go up in a material way over the next year or two, that's what will bring house prices down in a serious way, in my opinion. What do you think? Chris, could you explain the causal effect there? What, are, what is the linkage between bond yields and the housing market? How does it practically play out? Ultimately, it's about affordability. And the reason why, of course, we can afford all these bigger mortgages compared to our parents' generation is that interest rates um, are so much lower. And in, uh, the interest rates we pay on our mortgage are either directly or more often indirectly affected by bond yields um, for, for all sorts of fairly easy reasons to understand. Um, I can remember having an Irish mortgage of 17% once upon a time. Imagine what that would do to the Irish housing market if we had an interest rate of even half that now. So it's about affordability. It's, it, the reason why house prices are up is because we can afford them. Um, and we can afford the, the cost of the borrowing. Um, mortgage, it's the same for governments. Governments can, can borrow in a way today that they could never have done in the past because the cost of borrowing bond yields are so low. So that, that's the connection. It, it's, it's whether or not we can afford the repayments. And if bond yields doubled, which they could easily do if they were going back to anything like historic norms, that would have profound implications ultimately for the interest rates that determine many people's mortgages. It's a bit different in the States because they do borrow long term there in a way that we don't. But ultimately, it all comes down to the same thing. Jim, um, we've run out of time again. We've got a whole list of things that we haven't talked about. I suspect we should leave it there unless you've got anything on your agenda that you want to, to mention at the death here. No, I haven't actually. Um, in our next podcasts, I wouldn't mind taking a look at the Exchequer returns for the first quarter that were published today because there's a lot of interesting stuff in there. 
but um, I think that's. I do, I'd just day. like to. Fi- I'd li- I'd like to finish. Then I'm going to finish where we started. With, our, with we keep promising ourselves that we will be COVID free podcasters, but inevitably we talk about it. And there's an article in the the Irish Times online at the moment. Um, various scientists are continuing to opine on these um, health protection surveillance center data on cases linked to outdoor transmission. I won't name the people because um, they might be too embarrassed, but a a professor from University College Cork said he was surprised by the figures. That's the ones that say that outdoor transmission is low risk and felt there could be a slight bias in the data. Um, That's damning with faint praise, isn't it? Um, The the other thing is that... uh, this, this uh, same professor said that more, more financial support should be used to encourage more outdoor dining spaces. So he seems to be contradicting himself. And so, an assistant professor of architecture at University College Dublin said the Irish figures on outdoor transmission were not robust, but they were in line with data from other countries. She said a, de- a study in China found that only three out of 1,200 cases examined were transmitted out of doors. So not only are these people spinning around, they're doing what people, when they've been caught on their messaging, um, they're contradicting themselves, not just in the same uh, paragraph, but in the same, in the same sentence. So I, I think this one will, will run and run. I do think these people have been caught. And I, and I think it brings, should, it brings to mind the old adage that should never let the facts get in the way of a good story. Well, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive i'll be a bit more literary than you jim <laughs> with that uh, thanks for listening thanks for the conversation jim see you next time thank you chris before our usual outro i'd like to just let everybody know that this is both a podcast and blogging effort on the part of jim and myself those of you nice enough to listen to these podcasts might be interested to know that there is an associated blog series that sometimes talks about the issues that we have talked about here, um, but often talk about something completely different. Uh, so if anybody would like to see anything written, please head over to our Substack CJP Economics site. Um, and sometimes there's an overlap, as there is with this one. We will be publishing a blog summarizing the stuff that we talked about with respect to the first quarter review of economics and markets. Hopefully something useful, something interesting. It is thankfully short so it doesn't require too much effort to read. Thanks again, all. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power. We aim to provide an independent take on economics, politics, and anything else that takes our fancy. Thank you very much for listening, and we hope to have you on board again very soon. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.